Howdy folks, Ravi and I are both traveling this week, and as a result, we weren't able to record an episode for you, but we decided to give you something uh, that is timely to the moment, and also for longtime Majority 54 fans, maybe just a, a little bit of, of vintage, vintage is in these days. So what you're going to hear is the episode that I did on Islamophobia on December 1st, 2017. This was episode four of the show. This is before Ravi became a co-host of the show. Uh, and what it is, is uh, the first like two thirds is an interview with my translator, Salam, uh, who we served together in Afghanistan. Uh, and then the last third is me breaking down the concept of homegrown extremism and his Islamophobia and terrorism. Uh, it's not directly on point, obviously, with the result or with the events uh, that are going on in the world right now. But I do think it is kind of timely and it's an interesting almost time capsule into uh, how we were talking about terrorism, how we were talking uh, about Muslims in this country uh, just five years ago, six years ago, I guess. So um, please enjoy. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, a podcast that helps the 54% of us who didn't vote for Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country, all by having conversations with real people experiencing these issues in their everyday lives and sharing their story. I loved seeing all the different places that y'all have been listening to Majority 54. There were remote beaches all over the world. There were commuter trains and, of course, just a whole bunch of folks doing laundry and dishes. So please keep the pictures coming. They, they really help me get to know this community of listeners that we're building. So this episode is about Islamophobia. And it features a conversation with my friend Salam, who I first met in Afghanistan in 2006 when he was assigned as my main translator. And on the back of my head is that, are they terrorists? Are they Al-Qaeda? Are they Taliban? Are they uh, Hig? Who are they? I'll, I'll I'm, I'm like, the US. Yeah, so I'm like tense, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the way I'm dressed and the way he's dressed, it's completely different than they are. Now, I'm sure that you've noticed lately that it is hard to argue issues like national security, terrorism, or, or foreign policy without the other side just kind of pulling you into a debate about Islam itself. So given that, it makes sense to dedicate a whole episode just to Islamophobia. So, Salam. Unlike most of the interpreters that I worked with over there, Salam was actually born in the United States. His parents were here at the time as diplomats, but their assignment was cut short, and then Salam's first birthday actually took place on the ship back to Afghanistan. His dad died when he was four, and then his mother died when he was 15. He was the youngest of five siblings, and then after he graduated from high school in Afghanistan, he and his siblings decided that it was time for Salam to take advantage of his natural-born American citizenship and move home, as he called it even then, to a country that he had no memories of. He started out washing dishes, and then as his English improved, he moved up to retail, eventually spending most of the 80s and the 90s as a TWA flight attendant based out of, of all places, Kansas City. When we first met, I thought this Afghan guy was pulling my leg when he said, hey, you're from Kansas City? Me too. By September 11th, 2001, though, Salam had settled down in San Francisco. He was a family man with a nice salary from a good job as a manager at an IT company. These days, Salam is 69 years old. He's retired, and he's living in Virginia. And when I called him about doing the podcast, I asked him how he was spending his time. And he said, Jason, I do nothing all day, every day, and it is fantastic. And that made me smile because 
as you'll hear, he's really earned the right to do nothing all day. Uh, Okay, here's my conversation with Salam on the patio in his very well-manicured backyard where I started by asking him where he was on 9-11. I got up in the morning. I went downstairs to put my coffee, which, of course, it's three hours different. Mm -hmm. And I turned the TV on, and I'm watching the towers, the the one tower was smoking. So this is like, on the West Coast where you are, it's like 6 in the morning or something. Yes, yeah. And I sat down, and I was watching, and I called my wife. She came downstairs, and we were just, we didn't know what the hell was going on. At that point, like, I imagine you were still paying attention to, prior to this, I I would imagine you would at least casually pay attention to what was going on in Afghanistan. Or not? On and off, on and off. Like, were you aware of the Taliban government? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was aware of the Taliban government and how they came into power and what happened before them and much, before that. I would imagine much more than the average American, obviously. you were, you were uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. and were you conscious of al-Qaeda and who Osama bin Laden was? And Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you, by the end of that day, you're, but, you're thinking about I didn't, that? I didn't, I didn't have a knowledge of... Uh, uh, who was responsible of heading the Twin Towers, mm-hmm. you know. I could not comprehend that they could come and attack the world, the, you know, towers in the United States. And then the story kept on going and going and going and... How, so how old were you at that time? Younger than now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, how old are you now, so <laughs> Older than then. Uh, 69. Okay, you're 69 right now. Yeah. All right. And I'm not going to do math live, but Don't. we can, but you know. Okay. It's We're sitting in your backyard in Virginia right. in 2017, so everybody yeah. can figure it out. All right. So, you know, you're, you're not 20. And you know that at that moment, and you know that your, uh, you know that your country has been attacked by the country that, you know, by, by someone who's at least harbored mm. Uh, mm. in the country that you grew up in. Right. So, when did you start thinking about what you could do about it? How when did how did that thought process go? So a friend of mine has got a job as a translator in Afghanistan. And it's our wait. So, how far past 9 11 are we? When? This is 2002 now. Okay, so 2002, a friend of yours. This is uh, fall of 2002. And a friend of yours gets a job to go over there. Right then and then, I decided that I think this is a great opportunity for me. For one, I had not been to the army. I said, two, I can help the country that I was brought up in. And three, the country that I live in and love it. And so I fill out an application. They send me this uh, form now that we all know it's FSADA. Yeah, FSA-86? Yeah. your security clearance. Right. And so I send that in, and I was hired and deployed in February of 2003. All right, so before you deployed, uh, I'm curious, 
What kind of training does somebody get in that role? Because it's very different than my role. So you just put up a zero. 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 Is zero that, training. Is that why you were always so hesitant to chamber around in your pistol? <laughs> I remember jumping forward to when I got there a little for a moment. I remember you saying to me often, because uh, I would say to you, like, Salam, are you are you gonna chamber around? Which for those listening means are you are you going to put a bullet in the chamber so you're ready to fire this yes, thing yes. and not just have the magazine in? And you would I don't know. Do you remember what you would say to me no, every time? No, I don't. You'd say, Jason, if we die today, it'll be because we are blown up. <laughs> and, and you'd say, that's right. <laughs> and you'd say, and my pistol will not stop that from happening. That is so true. I remember that now. But I the, remember that. I also remember, I would always know that we were, I would always, because you knew, you knew Cobble better, obviously, than I did. And so I, well, I was brought up in there, of course. Right. And I would always, I remember noticing sometimes you would chamber around. You would pull out your pistol and you'd put it around in the chamber. And then I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> What's happening now? Like, we're, we're, this is a dangerous <laughs> place we're in right now. <laughs> And, and I remember one time you also, we I think we went down, um, what's the street we weren't supposed to go down, but we did a bunch? Chicken Street? Chicken Street, yeah. But I remember uh, one time, we the first time we pulled down that street, I remember you put around in the chamber, and you turned to me and you said very politely, Jason, would you make sure all the doors are locked, please? <laughs> I'm starting to wonder if this podcast should just be called <laughs> Diana Reads the Ads. That's what everybody's favorite part is. It's so. my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. SeatGeek. It's the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. I double tapped today and got a whole family tickets to the Monster Truck Mania event at the Sprint Center. Which There's so-called coastal elites listening to this right now going, of course you did. <laughs> no, Drew's really, really excited. Um, we had an interview session with him, and we asked him what he wanted to learn more about. We, that sounds weird. We Sometimes we jokingly ask Drew if he wants to be interviewed, we, and then we sit and We just practice, questions. yes. Yeah. I know when people think we're, like, training him for his first job at the age Job four, applications. And number one, he said he wanted to get better at listening, which yeah. is a fantastic, yeah, yeah. fantastic answer. That's cool. And then number two. Where he goes, we were like, okay, great. And then he goes, oh, oh, also. Also, I want to learn how to drive a monster truck. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so uh, when I got on SeatGeek and I saw that there was going to be a monster truck mania event that we could go to, uh, I got very excited. It was super easy. It was the easiest ticket buying experience I've ever had. Uh, you get the most bang for your buck. SeatGeek grades every ticket based on the value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. We're going to have to remember to tell him ahead of time that he doesn't actually get to drive them. I don't know. Maybe there's a part. Maybe but he's No, he's not getting <laughs> That's, that's a long waiver to sign. Best of all, our listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app, enter promo code MAJORITY54 today. That's promo code MAJORITY54 for $20 off your first SeatGeek <laughs> purchase. I might drive one. I could drive one. I don't know if there's a part. I've never been. I'm very excited. He's four. His it's going to be short. huge. He can't drive one. Huge. Okay, so... Uh, let, let's back up, though, a little bit. So in 2003, you deploy. 
What was it like when you first got there? I got a tent. Oh, right. You're there in 03. So it's I'm fortified, but it's all tents and yeah, yeah, yeah. dodging camel spiders and stuff. Yep, yep, yep. Literally. Literally, yeah. I'm with three Afghans and two Americans in this tent. Mm-hmm. And they're translators and the, the Americans are servicemen. And so we're in that place and the, my tent was leaking above my where I was sleeping. Mm-hmm. At that point, are you thinking, okay, I just left a job managing people at a computer company right. in California. Mm-hmm. And, and now I'm trying not to get rained on or bit by a camel spider or a scorpion in this tent. Right. In the country that I left as a kid. Yeah. I mean... Oh, those those were going to my head. <laughs> I yes. think. And then I knew that, you know, this is this is the army and this is the life that all the soldiers live in, the same condition, and I'm no different. And this is, a lot of people don't know, I mean, I don't know if it, was it wintertime when you got there? Oh, <laughs> February. Okay, it's February. It's cold. Cold as... Cold. It's cold. Yes, it is cold. It is cold in... You're in a tent in February in northern Afghanistan. Yes, and... That's cold. You get up in the morning, I mean, in, in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, I have to take a, find a flashlight and walk like about maybe 100 feet, 200 feet to go to the bathroom and then come back, you know, shivering and... Get back in your. Uh, I remember bed. I was, I was in a tent my first like couple of weeks when I got there, but it was October. Oh, totally different. But okay, so it's you're like you're doing this. How long were you in bar? Like when when did you get down to Kabul and do the job you were doing when we were together? I started the job in July of '03 in Kabul. Uh, I'm curious. You finished high school in Kabul, right? So what was Kabul like then? Kabul was a very, very modern city. Uh, this is in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, very prosperous, very uh, secure as far as security is concerned. Uh, women was uh, very liberated. They used to wear miniskirts to school. There was no veil or Chaudhary, as they call them. And Afghanistan was probably the best during that time and that I can, that we all can say and reminisce in those days. And at what point, do you remember the first time that you were thinking, uh, this is not, like obviously you knew this is not the Kabul that I grew up in, but when mm-hmm. the first moment when you looked around and like really viscerally realized like, this is very dangerous. Okay. We used to come to Kabul, you know, on, on the weekends because we had the weekends off. Mm-hmm. And so we would take a taxi from Bagram, two, three of us get together. Afghans, obviously. Afghans, yeah, translators. And come to Kabul and, you know, uh, walk around. So the first time I'm coming to Kabul and we just entered the Kabul from the western side and my friend said Salam we are at this area of Kabul mm-hmm. the city of Kabul Jason this was where I used to live hmm. that same street that same block mm-hmm. I did not recognize it 
Hmm. I did not recognize the people. I did not recognize anything. For one thing, I thought it was everything was shrunk. The streets were very small. Mm-hmm. So I had to get myself orientated. And then I start recognizing places. It was that strange and that different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People in there, I'm looking at them and I say, who are these people? Because these are, these, these, these are not the same people that I used to grow up. Do you mean like the way they were dressed? What do you mean? The way they were dressed. Well, you see, what happened was once after the, uh, uh, during the Taliban and the uh, Mujahideen era, whoever was somebody in Kabul, they left. So there was a vacuum. And people from surrounding villages and provinces came and filled that gap. Now, these are the residents of Kabul, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I did not recognize. Mm-hmm. And on the back of my head is that, are they terrorists? Are they Al-Qaeda? Are they Taliban? Are they uh, Hig? Or who are they? Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll I'm, I'm like, the US. Yeah, so I'm like mm-hmm. tense, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way I'm dressed and the way he's dressed is completely different than they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you so, feel like did, were you worried that they looked at you and and knew? Oh yes, automatically. You feel like they made you right away? Absolutely, absolutely, huh. absolutely. And so, obviously, that hindered your ability to get. I mean, look, having a guy like me next to you hindered your ability to get around more than anything. <laughs> One of the things that I think, and, I'm, and the next thing I want to get to is like how long you were there and what it was like coming home. But I, I think. One of the things that people don't realize is how is how much more translators do for our service members than just translate their words. It's you for me. You translated culture. You you were able to tell me we would come out of a meeting and you would be able to tell me ten things that happened in the meeting that I didn't realize happened. You, you know, you were able to say you don't you know this this guy the way he's talking to you. This is what this means mm-hmm. and. When he said this, here's what he's talking about. I mean, you became functionally an intelligence professional. You would right. help with protocol, help me build rapport right. with the source, help me build that relationship. I mean, the little things like I remember the very first meeting we went into together. Uh, before we went in, you explained to me that, uh, as which is amazing that the Army didn't teach me this, but, but you did, that uh, when I shake hands with folks, that you put your hand to your heart right after you shake hands, which right. we did in every meeting with everybody I met to the point where when I came home, I had to, I had to remind Stop. myself not to do that <laughs> when I would meet new people. Now more than ever, it's important to keep learning about what's happening in the world across a wide range of topics. That's why you should sign up for The Great Courses Plus. Not just The Great Courses, but it's The Great Courses great. Plus. <laughs> Which I don't know if there was an original great courses. Perhaps this is like trademark. when trademark. when Mr. Pib became Pib Extra, and then slowly it just there was no Mr. Pib, and then I just learned the other day there's no Mr. Pib. It's just Pib Extra, and now I think it's just Pib. It's very confusing. Anyway, learn, learn from yeah. award-winning experts about anything that interests you: politics, history, science, soda.
even how to cook or take better pictures. You get unlimited access to over 8,500 engaging video and audio lectures. I have signed up for two, one on fiction writing, as you know, Mm -hmm. I like to write fiction, and also one on grammar because... Kind of an ironic combination. <laughs> a selling author who signed up for a course on grammar. Well, I, I, I you know, I can't spell. So, I'm re- I, you know, this won't help you with that. <laughs> you can spell, you just struggle with certain words. Um, as a Majority 54 listener, you can start enjoying the Great Courses Plus for free. Sometimes they have like bonus tips, you know, like I can't spell lettuce. Yeah, I have to say, spell it right now. Latuche. Yeah, that's. Latuche. Yeah, that's, that's how I spell you, that's it. That's how you remind yourself to that's right. spell it correctly. That's how I do it. That's otherwise, the only way I can do it. So I'm maps. hoping that I'm going to get some big spelling You're takeaways. Not. It's grammar. It's a grammar course. And I want you to experience Great Courses Plus 2. Sign up today, and as one of our listeners, you can enjoy all of their lectures for free for an entire month. But you need to go to our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash majority54. You know a Great Courses Plus course in spelling would just be a course in english (laughs) i'm pretty sure it's my second language (laughs) get started today sign up at the greatcoursesplus.com slash majority five four let's chat about all the courses you're taking that's the greatcoursesplus.com slash majority five four do you remember when i told you that i was jewish absolutely Absolutely. I was wondering yeah. if, if, if you remember, because it was a big deal for me. No, no, to me it wasn't. I told the story a lot, but I'm curious how you remember the story. When I was in Army Intelligence School, an instructor pulled me aside, and one Jewish soldier to another, he gave me some advice. He said, Lieutenant, when you get over there, don't tell your translator that you're Jewish, because they won't want to work with you. I didn't know any better, so I took his advice. And when I got to Afghanistan, I was paired up with a gentleman named Salam. Salam, as it turned out, by pure coincidence, had family in Kansas City, where I'm from. And Salam and I spent just about every waking moment together. We were in some dangerous situations with some shady characters, and we spent a lot of time together. And I had never had a Muslim friend that I was that close to, so I asked Salam all sorts of questions about Islam. I was curious, and he answered all of them. And I never, throughout the whole time, I never told Salam that I was Jewish, because they told me not to. And then on one of my last days in Afghanistan, when I was getting ready to to go home, I decided that I was going to tell Salam, because we were really close, we were friends. And so I made sort of this big production of it. And we're sitting there, eating leftovers at his safe house, and and I, I make this big preface, and I tell him. And he looks at me kind of funny, and Salam says, Jason, did you think I didn't know that? <laughs> and, and I said, I said, yeah, man, I, I never told you. And he said, Jason, back home in Kansas City, my sister cuts your grandmother's hair. <laughs> and then he got a little more serious, and Salam asked me, he said, did you think I would care? And then I, I was a little embarrassed, and I told him the story about the instructor in intelligence school. And then Salam looked at me, and he said something that I'll never forget. He said, Jason, over here, we are just a couple of Americans who the bad guys would very much like to kill. I used to date a, a Jewish girl in Kansas City. Really? Yeah. And uh, We have both was... dated one Jewish girl in Kansas City, by the way. Mm. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> not the same one. No, not the same. I remember yeah. why we were at your safe house, which was we had we had finished all our meetings and stuff out in Kabul for the day, yeah. and we were going to go back in. And I think there was um, there was a lockdown because they they had some vehicle they thought might be a bomb or something. Right. So we they were like nobody's coming in. So and you, I think you said because you you were able to go out on your own, obviously a lot more than me. Right. No, I didn't go anywhere without you, you know, or or another translator anyway. Uh, but. I, you had you were like I have leftover Lebanese food, right? You had some Lebanese restaurant you really liked, yeah. And so uh, we were hanging out, and I and well, you know, I was like building. I was like, I want to tell Salam because we were friends, uh-huh. and I was getting ready to go home. So do you remember? You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do remember that. And you brought it up very casually. Oh, that's funny because yeah. I didn't think it was casual. That's good they came across that way. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and to me, it didn't matter. And you leave those things aside, you know, when you're a deployed and you know you, you're doing something mm-hmm. you know for the country and you forget who you are and you forget who everybody else is the mission comes first mm-hmm. and that's what we were sleep is incredibly important in my household which is why i love my helix mattress so much uh, i'm traveling at the moment uh, and as you know when i'm traveling i think about my mattress, like a lot. I've mentioned this often. Uh, I think about getting home to my mattress. I, I have back problems. So I have a Helix mattress that is just, it just works for my back. Uh, I sleep on my side um, and I, I have the, the Midnight Lux mattress. I know this because I took the, the quiz that they give you and that's how I came up with, that's how Helix came up with the mattress that, that, uh, uh, that I was going to sleep on. Um, and it, it works great for me. Um, if you don't want to take my word for it, Helix Sleep has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And by supporting Helix, you're allowing them to support uh, this show. So go purchase your Helix. Thank us later for your best night's sleep. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash majority54. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, Better sleep starts now. Our next partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. Uh, I gave AG1 a try initially um, because everyone around me, including Ravi, was like, this stuff is amazing. Uh, And I gave it a shot and I ended up being able to get rid of my multivitamin because it provides absolutely everything I need. Uh, As I mentioned, I am traveling right now and I'm gone for a whole week. So I have like uh, an entire, I, I have the travel packs and I have like this Ziploc bag that is just full of the travel packs. Um, and just a tip when you're traveling, uh, what you do, if you want to mix it in with your water and if you don't have like a shaker bottle, as I often don't when I'm traveling, um, you just get a bottled water and take like three or four sips of your bottled water and then just pour the travel pack greens right in there. And it's plenty of room. And then you just put the cap on and shake it up. And, uh, it, if it were environmentally friendly to do that all the time, that's what I would do at home. But uh, instead, I have a shaker bottle at home, so it works well for me. Uh, I drink it in the morning. Uh, I try not to miss a morning because when I when I do miss a morning, I feel a little off in the morning. So, you know, get yourself a routine. Get into AG1. This stuff makes me feel unstoppable. And it's just like a, a perfect little habit to start my day because it also helps me get hydrated to start the day. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D. It's like two little drops drops the vitamin D and it really does help with immunity as far as I've been able to tell. Uh, you'll get that with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority. Check it out. 
I remember it was several days into Ramadan before I realized you were fasting during the day. Right. And I felt like a jerk. Because <laughs> I was eating. I, I, I did not want to announce because, you know, then I would put my fellow workers in a, in a position that they have to, you know, do certain things or don't do certain things. And you would, like, go to the chow hall with me. Absolutely, and I would, yeah. I would, I would pile my plate with, with just junk, and yeah. I'd sit there and eat, and I'd be like, "You're not hungry?" <laughs> like I ate already. <laughs> and then it was several days later. I was, I was like, I felt so stupid. <laughs> I was like, "It's Ramadan." Yeah. And then I felt bad about eating in front of you all the time. So you're. It it, it didn't bother me. So you, you're observant, not as observant as as others, but it's always sort of been the same sort of. You do it quietly. Yes. So, but for instance, back in the 70s when you were in Kansas City, were you fasting during Ramadan? Uh, no, I wasn't really fasting until uh, late 90s. Hmm. Okay. What, why? What happened? Uh, when I met my second wife, who was from Afghanistan, and then we started to fast. And, you know, become a little more, you know, traditional. Did you, did you become more religious when you were back in Afghanistan, working as a translator? Did you feel like you became more observant? I did. I did. I did. Tell me about that. And then, well, one day I was at my cousin's house. And he kind of told me that, you know, we come into this earth with nothing. We leave with nothing, but the only thing we can take with us is our good deeds and your praying and things like that. And it just, just kind of struck me. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, you got to do something. And then I start praying and I do that. And I, I pray whenever I can and the times that I can, I accept it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I think I was. I think. I mean, I, I think this is probably true for anybody who goes to a place that's dangerous. But like, I definitely became uh, like it deepened my faith. Sometimes by necessity, you're just sort of like you seem. You kind of have a reason to pray every day. Yes, yes, because I know that there's a, another being in here, and we're all here for a reason, which we don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why not do something for him? Right. Yeah. It's, why not? It's more of a, it's gratitude oriented. Why not be nice to your neighbor? Why not be nice to everybody you meet? Mm-hmm. It's a lot nice. It's a lot easier to be nice than not to be. But so, okay. So you do that job. And for how many years? I mean, you, you got there in 03 and you came back which year? What year? 2010. So for seven years. Eight years. For eight years, you're back, you're in Afghanistan, you're doing that, you come home. What what was it like coming home? I mean, I, let me ask it a different way. How did it change the way you looked at America, your perspective of uh, being in America after having been there for that long? Before I can answer you this, I have to tell you this. Uh-huh. When I was in Afghanistan, first when I went there, I went there with really high hopes. 
that we are going to do something for this country and this country is going to stand on its feet and the people are going to pr prosper. And as the years went by, my expectation and my hopes were dwindling mm -hmm. rapidly. I, I mean, I remember... I, I, I think you remember, yep. You were pretty was, negative about the yes. Afghan government and... And I was like, I was pretty idealistic, and and you're was, like, Jason, these these are not good guys. No. And I'm seeing the corruption in the government. I'm seeing that I I have to take some responsibility for the Americans. Also, we we didn't do a very good job in there. Uh, and so I came to America, and I was. I was criticizing them. Them being? The Afghans. Right. The Afghan government, the, 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 the Congress, the, the ministers, the, the generals, and everybody else. Well, I mean, because and, and what you and I did was we worked on anti-espionage and anti-corruption investigations. Right, right. So it would, it's, so I think you come by, honestly, a, a pretty negative perception of a lot of the people we were investigating. Right. And I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing them. Mm -hmm. within myself that you know so when I came back here and I'm seeing the corruption in the uh, political uh, fights and this and that and I said hmm we just went to this country that it was in war for 30 years and we're trying to get them out of what they went through. And I am blaming them. This is not mm -hmm. right. Got to give them some slack. Hmm. Uh, not that I want to give them slack as far as corruption and things like that is concerned, but I'm looking at in the U.S. and I'm saying, wait a minute. Things are not better in here either. I mean, they're better, but it's not. It wasn't the idealized version maybe you had in your mind when you left. Correct. Speaking of the politics here, so thinking about what has gone on here, you know, in the last, well, we'll just say it. Like, you have President Trump who ran on a Muslim ban, ran, uh, ran the way he did, talking the way he did about about Muslims. As somebody who who served their country, who spent eight years in Afghanistan, like, how does that feel, like, how does that feel to you, to watch? It was very heartbroken, heartbreaking to hear that here's somebody who's saying something like that and being praised by a number of people, by a group of people or millions of people, and then you sit back and think that, wait a minute, is it, is it him or is it the population who's accepting it so you're and rewarding him with cheers and yeah. which, which one am I trying to blame now? For you as a Muslim, how do you compare your experience living in America right now versus living in America when you first got here in the 70s from your perspective? No change. No change except 
when there's a bombing someplace, mm-hmm. I pray to God, I hope he was not a Muslim. Tell me more about that. Because it's, whenever it's, it, it, you know, there's a Muslim person who acts in a violent way, you know, taking innocent people's life, it bothers me and it reflects on my religion because he was religious, Muslim, mm-hmm. but it has nothing to do with what he did with Islam. Mm-hmm. It's not a reflection of it at all. Really. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Now you see, like we're here in Virginia, we're sitting in your backyard in Virginia, mm-hmm. the same state where Nazis and the KKK just marched and the president took a couple of days to condemn them. And when he did, it, when he did it, felt very much like he was doing it because he felt he had to. Um, he, you know, has said last year uh, that there needed to be a ban on Muslims until we figure out what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. He's, I think, called for surveillance. Like, does it feel, does it feel like the same country to you? Like, how does that feel personally to you? I think, I think it's very sad and to see the president of this great nation not to realize the enormity of what had happened to take control of it and condemn it in the strongest words and then to come back and say that other things, you know, regarding the incident. I think that's, you know, it's not presidential. You are the president of this country and the, 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 the only person that you can unite the population of this country. And you're not doing it. I'm really grateful to Salam for doing that. I mean, personally, I love any opportunity I get to sit down and catch up with Salam. Uh, but I hope that you found that conversation to be as valuable and interesting as I did. Now, this is part two of the show where, as you know, I take this time to respond to the most common Republican talking points on the topic at hand. Today, it's Islamophobia. So let's start with the first common Republican talking point. Ramadan begins. Another terror threat dominates the headlines. Of course, uh, bombs blowing up in mosques. It's another black eye for Muslims worldwide who are trying to fight the image that extremists really represent their religion. Robert Spencer is the author of the politically incorrect guide to Islam and the Crusades, and he joins us from Boston. Robert, thanks for being here. So there's Thank always you. confusion about Islam. Is it a religion of violence or peace? Well, this is the great politically correct falsehood that is taught everywhere, that Islam is a religion of peace that's been hijacked. Islam is actually unique among the religions of the world in having a developed doctrine, theology, and legal system that mandates warfare against unbelievers. And this is what moderate Muslims have to face and reject forthrightly and honestly if there's really going to be an end to violence committed in the name of Islam. So this argument is basically Islam is an inherently violent religion and we're at war against it. So when we talk about the Torah or the Bible and we compare it to the Quran, people recoil and they shut down. Look, it's a valid argument to say that it's just as ridiculous to blame all Muslims for the San Bernardino shooting as it is to blame all Christians for the KKK member who killed people at the Jewish Community Center here in Kansas City a few years back. It is valid to compare these two 
absurd arguments to point out how absurd either would be. But it is not effective because it just causes people to become defensive and shut down. Instead, let me tell you the story of two young men who are out there right now. They may both live in your community. They both have a history of mental illness in their families. They've both been depressed, both been unable to hold a job, both been bullied at school, probably because of their appearance. Neither has much money. They keep to themselves these days. They're closing out the world. They play video games, and their social interactions are pretty much all online. They're angry at how the world has treated them, and and they're looking for someone on the Internet who seems to welcome them and, and validate their anger. One of them is of white European descent and, and only went to church on Christmas and Easter growing up. The other is, is brown-skinned, of Middle Eastern descent, went to mosque every once in a while as a kid with his dad, but, but rarely fasted for Ramadan. Both were born and raised right there in your town, and both are frustrated with their situation, both of them angry with how things have turned out for them. The white kid has been spending a lot of time on white supremacist websites. He's made what he thinks are some friends on these message boards. And, and his friends are telling him that he's right to be angry, that they're angry too, and that, that none of this is his fault. Above all, what they want him to know is that people like him are real Americans. America is his country, and, and most Americans like him are under attack from a growing minority. Now, the other kid's anger has led him to an ISIS recruiting website, and, it, and it's giving him the same feeling of belonging right there in his basement, just like the feeling the white kid's getting in his own basement a few blocks away. The message he's receiving, though, is slightly different. This other kid, the websites he's looking at, they're telling him that he doesn't belong in America and that he never will, that you can't be a Muslim and an American at the same time. They're saying, Americans don't want you. Now, both of these people are candidates for radicalization. And imagine how much more likely they are to actually become radicalized and violent when society reinforces the messages that they're receiving. When the government tells the white kid to fear the brown kid and that America can't be America unless we do something about that brown kid, then, then government's making the same argument as the KKK website. It's you are an American under attack from fake Americans and we need to fight for a real America. Now, when the president says that Islam hates America and that we need to ban Muslims, he and ISIS are making the exact same arguments to the Muslim kid. He's saying, you're not a real American. In fact, you are our enemy. And when people in power stay on the same page with ISIS long enough, eventually together, they're going to convince some of these kids to buy the garbage that ISIS is selling. So the basic argument here is that any time the president of the United States is saying the same things as ISIS or the KKK, that's counterproductive in the fight against terrorism. Okay, let's do another Republican talking point. After the latest terror attack in Europe and the radical Islamist threat growing around the world, do Muslims here in America need to speak out more to help to try to prevent these attacks from happening? So this is one you hear all the time. It's placing the blame for acts of terrorism on all Muslims by saying they're not doing enough to denounce and stop terrorism. When somebody says this, I try to talk about this from the point of view of the average American Muslim. I mean, let's say you were raised in the mosque, you're a good citizen, you pay your taxes, you vote, maybe you or one of your relatives even served in the military for a bit. You've never met a terrorist. You've never even met anyone who's met a terrorist. But every day, people are saying that you're refusing to stand up to terrorism and implying that you agree with the terrorists, that you sympathize with them, that you're rooting for them. How does somebody even disprove that accusation? 
Does Salam sound like somebody to you who hasn't recognized that violent extremism claiming the mantle of Islam is a terrible thing? I mean, the guy spent eight years of his life fighting it, risking his life to fight it. In fact, he's done far more for this country than I have, for instance. He's a Muslim. He prays. And believe me, he despises the Taliban, ISIS, al-Qaeda, the HIG, and a whole bunch of other terrorist groups that you've never heard of, but he knows all about because it was his job to know. That's why whenever there's an attack, Salam is thinking, I hope it's not a Muslim. It's why my friend Rainey, a dermatologist who's a Muslim, points out that so-called moderate Muslims denounce terrorism all the time, but it never gets picked up by mainstream media. Fox News doesn't want Muslims to denounce terrorism. They want them to denounce Islam. Frequently, when people make this argument, they act as though American Muslims hate America. I haven't met any American Muslims who hate America, but I've met a bunch who are sincerely worried about whether America hates them. First, let's consider what that must feel like to an American Muslim. Consider what that feels like to Salam. He described the neighborhood he grew up in the way it was back in the 60s and then the way it was when he first saw it again in 2003. Everything looked different to him, and most of all, he knew he looked different to them. He knew he wouldn't be able to fit in because they would see him as a foreigner, an American, because he had nothing in common with them now. And that's someone who grew up in Kabul. Imagine how he would have felt if he'd grown up in the U.S. And by the way, you know who's doing more to fight homegrown ISIS radicals than any other group of civilians? Muslim Americans. Let me tell you what I mean. Several days a week in Afghanistan, my job was to go out with Salam or another translator and meet with various sources, primarily around Kabul, and bring back information. Usually it had to do with corruption within or, or espionage against the Afghan government. And the second most common kind of intelligence I brought back was about the heroin trade. And then the third most common was that I would occasionally get a secondhand tip about someone planning a terrorist attack of some kind. Obviously, when I got that last kind of intel, I was pretty urgent about reporting it up the chain of command. Every once in a while, I'd do that, and some joker back at the intel shed would say something like, yeah, but your source is Afghan. And whenever someone would say that, the rest of us would look at them like they were crazy, and inevitably somebody would point out, dude, we're in Afghanistan. <laughs> Obviously, most of us understood that no matter how good we were at intelligence work, it wasn't our country. So when it came to human sources, the best information was going to come from people who actually lived in the country and spoke the language. So when someone says that the Muslim American community needs to take responsibility for homegrown terrorism, I always ask what exactly they're not currently doing that they should be doing. You think terrorist attacks by young, disaffected white kids radicalized by a KKK website get foiled without the help of at least one white person getting some information and passing it along? No. Of course not. And the same goes for an unsuccessful plot cooked up by a young, troubled Muslim youth radicalized by ISIS websites. You probably ain't stopping that one unless somebody who knows him well says something to you about his odd behavior. My point is this. You like it when the FBI successfully busts up an ISIS plan to kill Americans? You probably have several Muslim Americans to thank every time it happens. It ain't just a bunch of Jews and Christians at the FBI single-handedly keeping us safe, because that's not how law enforcement or intelligence or counterterrorism works. In fact, the Muslim American community has been saying loud and clear since 9-11 that the best way to help them fight violent extremism is to bring Muslim American leaders into the fold, not push them away. 
All right, folks, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, we are not, like, gone or anything. We'll be back next week. Uh, it's just Ravi's on the other side of the world, and we're just in very, very far-flung time zones because I'm traveling as well this week. But but next week, we'll be back uh, with uh, a regular episode, um, and we will we will talk to you then. So remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.